When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Janet Fitch. This is Jeff Jackson. This is Dana Spiota. This is Chris L. Terry. This is Michael Amos Cody. This is Lance Olson. This is Jessamine Violet. This is Zachary Lazar, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. When the hell is season three starting? Coming right now, baby. Rock is lit! Season 3! Hey there, Lit listeners. Welcome to Season 3 of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, and also a recent finalist in the PopCon Indie Podcast Contest in the category of Art and Culture Podcast. Rock is Lit is written, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. Special shout out to this season's intern, Hannah Stewart. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, this is Mick Jones of Foreigner, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. Drop me a line at christyalexanderhallberg at gmail.com to let me know what rock novels you'd like to hear featured on the show. And for goodness sakes, subscribe, comment, leave a five-star rating and all that good stuff on your podcast platform of choice. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for your support. We're starting Season 3 with a bang. Peter McDade is here to talk about his novel, Songs by Honeybird, a story that features a fictional integrated rock band from 1960s Macon, Georgia, that fell off the musical map after a fire killed the lead singer and guitarist and also, possibly, the band's African-American drummer. To put it more succinctly, Songs by Honeybird is about a band, a romantic breakup, a PhD candidate in history's research, secrets, fathers, racism, Atlanta, the 60s, and the repercussions the South still feels from that period, and a talking dog. Yes, a talking dog. In the last segment of the episode, 
Alan Light joins me to talk about musician, civil rights activist, and my fellow native North Carolinian, Nina Simone. The reason I've roped Alan into popping in is because one of the two main characters in songs by Honeybird, the piano playing Nina, is named after the legendary artist. Alan is a rock critic, journalist, former editor-in-chief of Spin and Vibe magazines, a former senior writer at Rolling Stone, and author of the book What Happened, Miss Simone, a biography of Nina Simone inspired by the Academy Award-nominated Netflix documentary of the same title. You won't want to miss our combo, so make sure you stick around for that. But first, I'd like to welcome Peter McDade. If you haven't heard my interview with Peter McDade on his award-winning first novel, The Weight of Sound, in Season 1, Episode 15, please have a listen. We go into detail about his music background, his experience as the drummer for the 90s indie rock band Uncle Green, and the music business in general during that time. We also talk about the original soundtrack he made for The Weight of Sound. He's done another soundtrack for his novel Songs by Honeybird. Find links to both soundtracks in the show notes. Without further ado, here's Peter McDade. Welcome back to Rock is Lit, Pete. It is so nice to see you again. Nice to be back. Thanks for having me. You're the first of my three Wampus Multimedia dudes to make another appearance on the podcast. You were here in Season 1, Episode 15, to talk about your novel, The Weight of Sound. And Richard Folco, who wrote We Are All Together, was here also in Season 1. Jason Warburg, who wrote Believe in Me, popped in in Season 2. And actually, he's coming back in Season 3 to talk about the sequel to that. Oh, great. Never Break the Chain. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Wampus Multimedia, for supplying me with a stream of great rock novelists. This is working well for me. Well, uh, thank you for having us. Absolutely. And we need to give Richie a shout out because he's got a new bookstore that we're recording this on September the 1st. It'll air later, but his bookstore opens tomorrow, and that is Big Red Books at 120 Main Street in Nyack, New York. I think I said that right, maybe. You did. It's very exciting. I, uh, I can't wait to go see it someday. So I have a lot of questions for you about your novel, Songs by Honeybird. But before we go there, I have a little blast from your past to kick things off. All right. Here's a name for you. Sheer Luck Homely. (laughs) Ring a bell? Yes, it does. (laughs) So you started writing short stories when you were in third grade, typing them on your mother's typewriter. And as I understand it, you wrote some stories about a detective you made up called Sheer Luck Homely. So ever since I learned this, I've been dying to hear about this character. Tell me a little bit about him. Well, you can imagine how advanced or unadvanced a a nine-year-old is when writing, but I loved mysteries. Um, By third grade, I was already plowing through Agatha Christie's and had just started reading Sherlock Holmes. And I also loved slapstick movies, uh, Marx Brothers, Laurel and Hardy. And so I had this idea that I would combine them And he would have this really clumsy detective. Inevitably, at the end, he would solve the crime. And he would say, you know, it was my brilliant thinking. And somebody else would say, no, it was just sheer luck, Homely, because his last name was Homely. That's where that comes from. Okay. Yep. He was so clumsy, he would somehow stumble into the answer and think it was his brilliance. (laughs) But his sidekick, and I forget what I call Dr. Watson, probably something very (laughs) just as clever as sheer luck, Homely. His sidekick would point out that you only solved it because you got lucky. Oh, well. 
Speaking of short stories, I know that Songs by Honeybird came out of a short story you wrote in 1997. I presume Sheer Luck Homely was not in that one. No. Tell me about that story that wound up evolving into this novel. It was... I mean, you're right, too. So you know that sometimes you write these little doodles. I compare it to like a musician having like a guitar riff that you don't know what to do with, but you like it. And it was just this short story and the characters weren't even named. And it was a guy and a girl. And it was from his point of view. And they were breaking up. Well, he decides to break up with her after she tells him that her dog talks to her. That was there from the beginning. It was there in the beginning and was the idea that the dog also tells her that he is the reincarnation of the Buddha. But it's all in like 10 pages and it didn't really go anywhere. And it was, it was kind of played for laughs. Like, like oh, he dodged a bullet, right? You know, he, he got this, this, you know, this woman who was clearly dealing with some issues and thinking her dog is talking to her. It's almost like I wanted the readers to root for the the guy who leaves. But I kept thinking about it, and I kept thinking, well, that's not entirely fair to her, because it it led me to this idea of what is something someone you're in a relationship could say that would have you, you know, pull the ripcord and leave. And conversely, if you're in a relationship and it's a serious relationship, shouldn't you be able to hear anything and at least attempt to work through it. So I began to try to see it from her point of view as well, too, right? The idea that we hear that in relationships we're supposed to share all of this and to be open, and she was, but her reward was that he just left. And I then wrote, I don't know, 2010, a 400-page version of the book that just did not work. Like I got to the end and it just, and I'd workshopped it with some, my writing group and it just did not work. And I didn't know why. So I put it aside and to clear my head, began writing stories about these musicians. And that became the weight of sound. Okay. But I, but I kept thinking about it. And I still have not read that 400-page novel. It's here. I can see it in my stack of stuff. I thought I would just start all over. I gave everybody new names and kept the original, went back to that nugget, right, of that conversation where somebody tells you something, you break up, Mm -hmm. and then just start it all over again. Which leads me to the elevator pitch for this current version, right? So... Songs by Honeybird is a story of what happens after uh, a young couple in love break up because of a secret one of them has that the other cannot accept when he hears it. But that's not the end of the secrets in the book. <laughs> I, won't, I won't say too much else, but there, that's not the only secret that we deal with in this novel. Why are we keeping secrets?
This is Peter McDade, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. That had to have been a big owie to write 400 pages and realize it's not working. It was. But then when I began again, it was pretty quickly so much better that I chose the half glass full interpretation of like, I needed to clear my throat, right? I needed to find all the dead ends. And I found them. I found every dead end there possibly is. Um, there was a big thanks. I remember it was set over the fall semester, so they both deal with Thanksgiving. Like there's these two thirty-page chapters each in the middle of Thanksgiving, and I thought I've got sixty pages of Thanksgiving where like the whole book basically just grinds to a halt. So it was a big alley, but it was also kind of a learning experience of like you have to trust yourself, right, to understand when it's time to move on. Yeah. The novel explores racism, cultural appropriation, even some sexism in there. One thing I want to talk about before we really get into some of those areas, you have quite a bit in common with the character Ben in that you got a bachelor's and master's degree in history from Georgia State University, and your own research focused on Atlanta in the late 1960s and early 70s. What fascinated you about that period and place That made you want to revisit it in the novel. I mean, I studied the 60s a lot for my master's, and I became very interested in the idea that the the phrase the 60s really numerically didn't line up with the time period of the 60s. You could argue the 60s begin in the late 1950s because of various things that happened. You could argue they begin in the early 1960s. And you could argue the 60s don't really end until some people will, would like to say the 60s don't really end until, you know, Nixon resigns and that's 74. So if we mm. think of the 60s as this period of political and cultural upheaval in the U.S. driven by a push for marginalized groups to have a greater voice, 
something like that, right? The timeline is kind of shifty. And so when I began my master's, I thought it was really interesting to look at kind of the end period, like after the big legislation of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, like what happens? Yes. It's almost like that movies, the movies, right, where the rebels win, right? We get the victory. We overthrow the tyrant. But like the interesting stuff almost comes after that. What do you do? You know, and, and the tyrant, even if you defeat them in name, isn't really defeated, right? The Voting Rights Act didn't mean that everyone gets to vote forever more easily. Right. And I had studied the Great Speckled Bird, and I thought it was interesting. But like Ben, and this part I did, it, I just is Nick from my life. I didn't think the paper by itself worked as a thesis topic. Underground newspapers had been covered. Underground newspapers are interesting, but, and this is no offense to the people who wrote for the bird, it's a great journal, but the actual stories, I just couldn't figure out how to frame that as a single topic. So I picked a couple of stories from it, and it's almost like I give Ben the topic I wish I had stumbled across in the story of of Honeybird. Uh Uh-huh. The offices for that newspaper used to be at the north end of Piedmont Park, I think, in Atlanta, and they were firebombed oh, yeah. and destroyed in, in May 72. So there's a real interesting history that goes with that newspaper. Yep. The grad student scene in the novel, I very much enjoyed. Okay, who's ready to do the grad student shuffle? Come on! Okay, let's start easy. Knock over your clean canteen. Now tell me about ghee. It's an Indian butter, and it's the only thing I have in my fridge. Mark yourself safe on Facebook, even though you're nowhere near the emergency. Yeah! Take one 40-minute tango class. Be the worst in that tango class. Now teach every first date from here. And I could totally relate to the cube farm experience. We called it the bullpen at East Carolina <laughs> University. Okay, yep, yep. <laughs> and it was the same stuff. Same thing, yep. The same stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the grad student debates, uh, and I love the one in the novel about the Beatles, the White Album versus Tommy, I think it was. Yep. Let's talk about the subject that he did stumble upon, that you wish you had. That I wish I had, the, yes. The subject that he wound up going with that really shapes the novel. Yes, he, he discovers this, he finds a picture of this band and the speckled bird, and it's a white male, a white female. And a black male. So it's a power trio in multi-gender and multiracial. And he realizes from the timeline that it's before the Almond Brothers. Mm-hmm. So the Almond Brothers are in Macon and they have a black drummer. I'm sure that someone's going to email you and say that there's some band that t- proves my story wrong. But in my reckoning and the research I was able to do, the Almond Brothers are the first like successful integrated rock band in the Southeast. Yeah. Right. It's a very particular subject, but it's also very important, right? Given everything that the South had been through and that Georgia state where I went, didn't even have a black student until 62 or 63. So this is, it's pretty recent. Mm -hmm. And so he finds a picture of this band and he's intrigued But the next mention of the band is after a horrific fire where two of the band members are killed. So they only get to make two records. 
and he decides that this is something that he needs to pursue. He wants to figure out, is there a story behind the fire? Uh, And he wants to find the music and listen to it and also to see if it's if it's any good. Right. The thesis is much better if the music actually still holds up, because then he can argue, right, that if it were not for the fire, maybe we'd be, you know, having tribute Honeybird bands the same way they're tribute Almond Brothers bands all throughout the, the Southeast right now. Yes. The music that Ben winds up listening to, he decides is good. Yes. How influenced were you by the Almond Brothers? I listened to the Almond Brothers more than I ever had because I thought a couple things. I wanted to see what was in the air. I wanted to see if I could sprinkle enough of that sound in Honeybird that Ben, if he wanted to, could argue the Almond Brothers had been listening to Honeybird. I wound up not pushing that too hard, but I wanted to see. But then I also went and really I asked a couple of my friends who grew up in the South. I did not. You're from Jersey. I'm from Jersey. So I'm like, if you were in the South, like, what would people have been listening to? You know, Otis Redding. Mm-hmm. James Brown. So that R&B stuff is, is also in, supposed to be in there. And then I don't write the music. I write the words, but I don't write the music. So I outsource that. And... My primary collaborator for the Honeybird songs is my friend Jeff Jensen, who was in the band. Whom you've known since third grade. Since third grade, since Sherlock Homely. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> and Jeff was in Uncle Green with me. For those who remember The Weight of Sound, the first song written for that record, so the first song that ever got me on this whole crazy soundtracks for books thing, was Gardenia. And that was Jeff. I know you can't hear me. My eyes don't talk so loud. But you should know I've been looking at you. You should know I have some questions for you. That's a great song. I sent them the lyrics and said, so you want to write the music for a fictional band, for a novel that may or may not even ever come out? I'm like three minutes later. Sure. So. That's a good friend. This time I pitched him and said, I need a couple of songs written by this power trio from Macon in the 60s. I have another one written by my friend Bob Fenster, who's from Jersey. He's made a couple of solo records. A guy named Chuck Walston, who was in a great band in Atlanta called the Vidalias back in the day. And he wrote one of the songs, too. And then Jeff wrote the the others. And I just gave them all the brief, right? This is the time period. And this is the kind of feel that we're looking for. And they all came back with stuff that worked. And then the production was a key thing. So a lot of name dropping here. but. Uh, my friend Johnny Daly is a great producer here in town. He's from the Southeast. And he also wrote one of the songs, now that I think about it. But you wrote all the lyrics and did the drumming. Yes. 
We should say about Jeff, he's a Jersey boy too, but his mom is from North Carolina, so he's got some Southern roots in there. Oh, for sure. And then that, like, so producing it then with Johnny was like when we record it, and Johnny got this right away. I, I explained him what was going on. He's like, oh, so you, you want it to sound like, like a garage 60s band, but sonically slightly better. Like, can we actually get it mm-hmm. to sound sort of like to be pleasing to the modern ears, but to have that vibe? Like in Waiting Here, that 681, when the organ comes in at some point, uh, the backing vocals are arranged in a certain way, the guitar tone. So it sounds sort of like the 60s, but also still of the day. sounds so complicated to me (laughs) getting the book together for one thing and then putting together a soundtrack and you went through it with the weight of sound and i know that you didn't intend for your second book to have a soundtrack you were not going to be that guy who did the books with the soundtracks initially it wasn't going to have one but that was when ben's focus for his research subject was on harlan and he was the singer and guitarist in the band it was on his father, Hank Honeybird, exactly. who was this racist Southerner who ran for local Senate seat and lost. When it switched back to Harlan and back to the band and the whole situation going on with them, then you realized, oh, I got to do a soundtrack. So I'm wondering, was that on your part? Yay, I'm doing another soundtrack. Or, oh, shit, I have to do another soundtrack. <laughs> uh, it was almost like... Of course. Like, you know, what was I thinking? Of course it was going to be like, you know, and I decided that I would try to have it be a a smaller project. Weight of Sound had 14 songs in lots of different bands because the singer-songwriter goes through several different bands. There are other bands we read about, and I wanted them to have songs, and it just became a lot. A lot of co-writers, all these musicians that played it fantastically but you're asking your friends to play for free and so when that track doesn't come in quite as quickly as you want it to like you have to walk this fine line of like hi how are you thanks for doing that do you have it yet <laughs> so this was just eight songs if you had to pick two or three songs from that soundtrack which two or three songs do you think come the closest to really crystallizing that band heavy heavy hands is um, written by Jeff. And actually, that's recorded with Steve Gorman on the drums. And Steve Gorman was the drummer for the Black Crows. Wow. He's been friends with us. back. When they used to be Mr. Crow's Garden, and they used to open for Uncle Green. So oh. full circle. Oh, my goodness. And Steve and Jeff are especially good friends, and they never gotten to play a song together. And so for that one, Jeff was like, I'd love to get Steve. Because, I mean, the Black Crows, right, are, they certainly had that Southern rock vibe thing oh, yeah. down. And, and Steve can, is an amazing drummer. 
it works because in the book it's kind of Honeybirds, like that's the one they close all their shows with. Yeah, but it's the first time the photographer Foxy saw the band. They opened with that song, and then it's what they closed their yep. very last show with. So you mentioned Full Circle. Yep. That's, that's Full uh, Circle. So that's kind of a touchstone for the whole book. I would think losing control is another one because that's in the universe of Honeybird. That's off the second record and it's a little more credence than Almond Brothers, right? And so it's a little more um in my mind, this is not the diss the Almond Brothers, but in my mind it's almost like an a forward evolution, right? Some like the kind of song they couldn't have pulled off on the first record is Ben's argument when he listens to it. And it's also Nina's favorite song, the character Nina. Yep. Those are three good choices. I can go along with those. I probably would have added Mr. Invisible in there just because it was the first band, the first uh, song the band wrote. Yep. Hey, listeners, if you're enjoying the episode so far, stop what you're doing and leave a five-star rating and comment on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or your podcast platform of choice. Help this first and only podcast devoted to rock novels continue to build momentum. The way to do that, besides listening to the episodes and telling your friends to check us out, is to subscribe, like, and rate the show. It'll only take a minute, it won't cost you a cent, and you'll get yourself some good karma. Links to Apple Podcasts and Good Pods in the show notes. Thanks so much for your support. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. Pete, I've listened to a lot of podcast appearances that you gave and read a lot of interviews with you about songs by Honeybird. To prepare for our talk today, and I haven't come across, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I've missed something, haven't come across any that really delve into what I think is an interesting and quirky aspect of Nina's character. The fact that her parents named her after the legendary musician and civil rights activist Nina Simone. You're right. No one has ever asked me that before. Do you think it's because a lot of people don't know who she is? I think that's part of it. I think that. Nina's story, Nina's arc is sometimes overshadowed by Sid. Sid the talking dog. And that becomes the the thing I get most questions about. Whereas I think the name is very interesting. The name is, to me, I would just, the word is powerful, right? Powerful as a presence and as a performer and as somebody who... No matter how it began, and once she's grown into herself as is marching through her life, 
you know, on, on her own terms. And Nina's parents give her this name. And then the question is, that's one of the things that she is trying to figure out herself, all right, over the course of this book is, is who she is and what she's going to do to march through this, this life. Before we go any further, I would love for you to read from the book, the part that begins on page 50, where, where we get this information. So it, it starts with Nina heads over to the keyboard near the bottom of page 50. All right. This is Nina in her apartment. Nina heads over to the keyboard. She hasn't played the while since Ben left. She picks up the headphones and wonders which song she should attempt first. One thing her mother did right was make sure that music filled their house. Nina remembers records playing all weekend long, classical music on the radio during dinner. It was odd when she went to the house of a friend who didn't have music on and felt so silent and complete. Her father made his present felt through music too, thanks to all the vinyl albums with M.A. written in small, neat letters on the back. Nina thought those initials were the best part of the collection. Rare, tangible evidence of this person named Matt Alexander that she never got a chance to know. He hated writing on them, her mother said, when she noticed Nina running her finger over the initials. But he had great taste in music and greedy roommates. Nina was in third or fourth grade when her mother handed her an album with a photo of the top half of a black woman's head on the cover. Her face was tilted slightly, like she was giving something or someone the once-over. Nina Simone sings the blues. This is who your father and I named you after, her mother said, putting the needle down on the vinyl. The first song began with just a voice, a voice so deep and mysterious that it would have been scary if it hadn't been so beautiful. She was powerful and righteous and strong, her mother said as they sat together, staring at the record player, and her voice never lost its beauty. We wanted to make sure you had some inspiration, something to remind you to always make yourself heard. Piano lessons started around that time. Every Tuesday afternoon, she went to see Miss Siobhan, whose name she always mispronounced. Siobhan, Siobhan, she mumbled under her breath as she slowly walked up the brick path, her mother's car already out of sight. As soon as the door opened and the imposing Miss Siobhan appeared, Nina would panic and say in a loud, scratchy voice the name she saw written in neat black letters every time she picked up her music folder. Hello, Miss Siobhan. Her teacher would scowl, correct her, and the lesson would be off to a terrible start. Nina loved the sound of the piano, loved the way her fingers felt on the keys, but she hated practicing. She was certain she would never get it, that she would work hard and still fail to please Miss Siobhan, so why practice at all? It was a relief when her mother stopped forcing her to take lessons after a year. When she was a freshman in high school, Nina began to sit at the piano for no other reason than she wanted to. For the first time, playing was rewarding. When she stopped worrying about reading music, the playing became her own. Maybe the distance between the dots on the page and the sound from the piano was too great. Or maybe she had just been too lazy to learn a whole new language. She found it much more satisfying to slowly work her fingers around the keys, trying to find her own path to the right sound. It's a new life for me, yeah, it's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me, ooh, 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 ooh. 
I love that passage. I think it says so much about Nina. What do you think it reveals about her and her story arc? I think it reveals how important music has been to her, even in a way she didn't realize. And that's going to become something that she's going to kind of increasingly turn to. And I think it also reveals that she is better at finding her own path, the way that her mother kind of implied with the name, than she thinks she is. That the music, while it felt like a failure to not succeed at lessons, in a way it revealed what is a, a different strength in her than she, that she sometimes fails to see. Yes. Throughout the book, a character is saying, you're strong, or you're this, or you're that. And she's, her reaction is always, I am? Yep. She hasn't come into her own. She doesn't quite know her strength. And that's what she's trying to figure out. But going back to Nina Simone, who was born in Tryon, North Carolina, which is very close to where I live, she died in France on April the 21st, 2003. You and I both love Prince. Yep. Prince also died on April the 21st. No way! How did I not know that? Oh. He died on April the 21st, 2016. Yeah. Just a little bit of trivia. You know, her songs like Feeling Good, I Put a Spell on You, Young Gifted in Black, Mississippi Goddamn, and Baltimore, which had this resurgence in popularity after Freddie Gray's death in Baltimore. She was an amazing figure in the movement, in music. And I'm so glad that the movie, the Netflix documentary, What Happened, Miss Simone, came out. I'm so glad Alan Light's book came out. Yep. Because so many people don't know who she is, which is really sad. It's almost like her multiple roles mean that she doesn't, like she's not known as just an activist. Not known, like she wasn't just a singer, was having multiple roles. Maybe somehow that means that she doesn't get as much attention when really it, it should mean she has twice the attention. It could be because none of the songs were like a, a radio hit. That I know of, like, I mean, I, Mississippi mm-hmm. Goddamn is not going to be played on the radio, right? So, right. And the bluesier stuff is kind of powerful and scary. And that's what I love about it. But it's not going to make its way to the top 40. So, yeah, it's a very interesting person. But I love that her parents gave her that name, giving her that strength of character that she now needs following the breakup with Ben, trying to go on the path of, of figuring out who she is. And she has a little help with that. So we're getting into that talking dog right now. She has a little help getting the Buddhist perspective on her predicament in life. So let's talk about that elephant in the room, which in this case happens to be a dog. <laughs> she does have this dog who claims to be the reincarnation of, of Siddhartha, the Buddha. I know the dog was in the original short story that beget this novel, but where did the idea of the talking dog originate? I really don't know. I've talked about this before, too, but when the writing's going well, it really is, in terms of the characters, it really is almost 
taking dictation. So mm-hmm. this woman in this short story is just telling her boyfriend about her dog. And then it's, oh, wait, it's a talking dog. And I'm just typing. And then, oh, and he's the reincarnation of the Buddha. So she just said it. I don't know why. And I have to give credit to another friend of mine, David Clement, who was a singer-songwriter in New York City. When I told him about this story, it was still a story, so it must have been 20-something years ago. He said something like, oh, Siddhartha, the original ne'er-do-well father. Who left his child. Yes, exactly. And that's, but that's not normally the first thing people think of when they think of Siddhartha. And so that it was the first thing he thought of, put it back in my head. And so, well, now that's interesting. It's almost like some part of me wanted me to get there anyway. Like some part of me had her talk about the dog who says he's Buddha. So that eventually on my own, I can find out, dig into that story and see how it fits into her story. in various interviews express concern over how readers would react to Sid the talking dog. You were worried they'd think, okay, he's gone too far out there for me. But as you know, there have been some great books that have featured talking animals. For instance, Animal Farm, yep. Mouse, Kafka on the Shore, To Dance with the White Dog, and my favorite, The Master and Margarita. Mick Jagger was actually inspired to write Sympathy for the Devil after reading that book. And if people are listening who've not read Peter's book, it works so well. It's not cheesy. That dog is in the story for a reason. And you get to decide for yourself whether or not he is actually talking to Nina. I was really impressed with how you handled that aspect of the story. Well, thank you very much. And that was another line I wanted to walk. Like, he only, we only ever see him talking to Nina. Exactly. In the apartment. In the apartment. And if, That does not mean he's not talking to her, literally. Given the rules that he has set up, that is how it's going to work. But it also means if you come at the book from a different perspective or see Nina in a particular way, that's just her working some shit out. Yes. Early on in one of the writing group reviews of an early chapter, you know, I always bring my stuff to my group very early. If they're listening, they're super patient. Like I put the rough and rough draft, but that's when it's most helpful to me. Once I have a draft done, like I have a pretty good handle on the revision process. And early on, one of the readers said, well, does the dog need to talk? Do we need to have the talking dog? And luckily everybody else in the room was like, yes, we need to have the talking dog. And other people had mentioned it to me, but it, He's always been a a key part of Nina's story. 
and Nina's story, while I, I wanted the book to be balanced, and I think it is balanced, it does begin and end with Nina. And her arc is, I think, I mean, I love all my children and all my characters equally, but I view her arc as kind of the, the soul of the novel, is Nina's change over time. Yeah, I think Sid is crucial for the book. I'll go that far. You must have had so much fun writing Sid's dialogue because you get to slip into that kind of elevated, highbrow, Buddhist (laughs) philosophical stance and offer all of this great advice that Nina really needs right then. That must have been a lot of fun. It was. And it was a way to get that work, that stuff into the book without it sounding like she's listening to a low rent self help book or something, right? It's, you know, right. she's going to listen to it because he's, he's the fucking Buddha. So whatever he said, like, you know, he gets to say what he wanted. He's earned this over thousands of years of, of, of wisdom. Although he did still leave his child and wife. So he did. And that's, we're back to the fathers that are a mixed bag, right? Mm-hmm. And fathers who can justify their actions. Well, I left my child and my wife to save mankind from suffering. But you're still leaving your child and your wife, right? I mean, you're still leaving some pretty hard stuff to deal with behind. And Nina and Sid, the talking dog that is the reincarnation of the Buddha, have that conversation about his leaving his wife and son, which is really interesting. In fact, it's one of my favorite parts of the novel. Oh, thank you. Switching gears a little bit. You're wearing a Radiohead t-shirt. Yes, I am. It seems appropriate that you should be wearing a Radiohead t-shirt right now because Nina loves Radiohead. There are so many bands mentioned in the novel, and it was so fun cataloging them. I do have to thank you, because at one point, Nina wears a Led Zeppelin t-shirt. Yes. There's also a mention that her father thought Led Zeppelin only sounded good in the car. That's just wrong. (laughs) You get a sense that Nina's musical taste, for the most part, is different from Ben's. She's really into Depeche Mode, for example. She had their poster on her childhood bedroom wall since ninth grade. And at one point, she meets a guy in her algebra class, Nina's in college, and refers to him as the Asian Lenny Kravitz. (laughs) And it's really interesting when Ben goes into his dissertation advisor's office, Dr. Reed, she's listening to Miles Davis. Then there's the grad student, Shelley, whose dissertation topic involves tying the women of the abolitionist movement to punk's strongest icons. So there's a reference to Joan Jett. Every character has their own style of music that you associate with them. I love how you use music in the novel to flesh out these characters. It's really well done. Well, thank you. It's how I decode and interact with the world. And I feel like a lot of people do that. Even people who are not musicians or in bands, but that is how they're going through the world. The same way there's a group of people who 
obsess over soccer or whatever their thing may be, right? Some touchstone that is going to allow you to help make sense of the the madness around you. And I was trying to make a shorthand kind of for the music lovers who are reading the book. When you drop Joan Jett, instantly an image, right? A vibe comes to mind. I hadn't even realized it till you're listening, we're listening to everything, but I I think yes, I was making Nina kind of the most eclectic taste in the book, which I hadn't even like it wasn't a conscious thing, but I think that's what I wound up doing because again, as we said earlier, she's discovering right how important it really is to her, to her path, to her life. I have gotten a lot of mileage out of your only pick one game All right. from the weight of sound. Ooh. And the first time I did that was when you came on in season one and we were talking about the weight of sound and I used it for every episode in season two, always giving you credit. The writers seem to enjoy it so much All and right. I enjoy it. So I'm going to keep it. Excellent. Let's play that game now. Let's talk about some key Atlanta locations. You live in Decatur, so it's not like you had to go do a whole bunch of research for the book. The book is set in Atlanta, but you did revisit some places, and you had never gone to open mic night at Big Tex. No. Yeah, so you went there. You took your friend with you, and you guys stayed for 90 minutes, as I understand it, which is how long the characters in the book stay. So, yes, we did. You know, there's there's some research going on. Nina's studio apartment on 12th Street is modeled after the one that you actually had on 12th Street. That's it. Yep. Atlanta is a character in the book. I felt like I got to know that city because I've never been. I've just Good. driven through. I felt like I really got to know it. So... The first couple of categories, and it bleeds over into the third of, you can only pick one, have to do with Atlanta locations. So you can only pick one of the real places to eat in Atlanta mentioned in songs by Honeybird. Number one, South City Kitchen, which is where Nina works, Rose's Pizza, Boca Lupo, Tin Lizzie's, and my goodness, Waffle House, because you have to have a study group at Waffle House. <laughs> I've had a yes, study group do. at Waffle House. You have to. Yes. Okay, you're going to dinner. Which one are you going to? Oh, uh, Boca Lupo. Okay, that's Italian place. That sounded very good. It's an Italian place, and they also go to 246 with Ben and his father. Mm-hmm. It's another Italian place. I love them both. Don't slay me, 246 lovers, but Boca Lupo... The menu is a little more uh, variety. Okay. And they have a small tasting menu. Oh. I'm a big fan of a tasting menu because you get smaller portions, but you get, that means you get to have more variety. So they have yes. a four-course tasting menu. It's a starter, a pasta, some sort of protein, and a dessert. And it's like just perfect. Okay. So Boca Lupa for the win. Yep. Second category, real places to grab sweets. We have to have dessert. Real places to grab sweets in Atlanta mentioned in Songs by Honeybird. Are we going to get chocolate cake from Elan's, lattes and pastries from Highland Bakery, or Jenny's Splendid Ice Cream? 
Uh, I'm going to stay local to Cato this time and go Jenny's because we can walk to it. Kids love it. Okay. It's like a Decatur institution. And it's right there on the square. There's a little green square there and you can walk around and eat your ice cream. Very nice. And this is where Howard, we have not talked much about Howard and we don't have time now, but everybody read the book. This is where Howard and (laughs) Nina go after their first foray into Big Texas Open Mic Night. Okay. This kind of has to do with Atlanta, but not entirely. Drinks mentioned in the novel. I cannot tell you how many books I have read and had and had the authors in the book on the show. We've mentioned YooHoo. I don't know what it is about YooHoo. You've got a <laughs> six pack of YooHoo on page three, which is yep. debris from Nina's post breakup breakdown. Yep. So we got a six pack of YooHoo, uh, Amberjack, Wild Turkey, Wine. Don't specify red or white, so I'm yep. just wine, gin and tonic, and ginger ale. Uh. I can also not drink YooHoo, but it seems to me like the like the perfect symbol and don't hate me YooHoo lovers of like how far Nina has fallen. That there's this empty six pack that she doesn't even remember. Like some some craven need inside her was so distraught that only this like basically inedible chocolate something was yeah. called for. And I've I've become more and more teetotal in my old age, so uh, I'm gonna go ginger ale. Okay. Classic. Refreshing. No caffeine. Gin makes me pass out. (laughs) (laughs) I really like how you use drinks in the book. I mean, the Yoohoo, like you were just saying, just crystallizes her state of mind at that point. How much lower can you go? Well, maybe if she'd had a box of Twinkies along with it, that would (laughs) have... Yes. There should have been a hidden box of Twinkies, yes. Oh, my gosh. All right. Here's a shift. Southern rock bands that Honeybird could have inspired. We got the Almond Brothers, Leonard Skinnerd, ZZ Top, the Marshall Tucker Band. Which one are you picking? Ooh, um, I think I'm going to go out and say uh, Skinnerd. Well, it's eight o'clock in Boise, Idaho. I think of them as a band, and this is just occurring to me. Um, so Honeybird is has a career cut short by tragedy, and that's a Skinner parallel. Of course, the Almonds do too, one of the Southern yes. rock bands and tragedy. But I feel like Skinner was moving into some interesting new directions just when they were cut short. When the plane crashed. When the plane crashed. Well, what's your name is on one hand, just another song about, you know, one night stands and lyrically has its own problems. I'm no doubt I haven't listened to it in a while. There was um, a groove there and some horn work there that was kind of new for the band and kind of like I began like thinking about it later. I thought like they. What if they'd made 10 more records? Like, where would they have gone? 
you know, if they've been if they'd lived long enough for that, that those who needed to would have sobered up at some point and maybe they would have begun to do some new interesting sounds. The Almond Brothers, God bless them, twenty minute live versions of songs, even dazed and confused. <laughs> just don't do it. Like, you know, the noodling at some point is just noodling. Like I need that we lose the song sometimes. Okay. Fair enough. Here is the last category, quotes from the novel. Which one resonates with you the most right now? Or which one really nails a moment, a plot point, or character best? Here's the first one. Nate's sister, Tony, says to Ben, We have been talking for quite a while, but you, a presumably enlightened academic, have asked more questions about Nate's dead body then you have his drumming. The South has always made it easy for black men to disappear. The next one, Dr. Reed, Ben's dissertation director, says to Ben, after Ben expresses concern after the Honeybird photographer that he's using as a source, made some racist comments. She says to him, and his racism does not diminish his value as a source. People are complicated even people who bear witness for us. More complicated people make for more complicated stories, but those are stories more worth telling. And here's one from Ben's dad to Ben, and you know what I'm going to say. The world, Ben, the world. Two types of people, actors and assessors. To succeed, (laughs) we need to understand which category we belong to and which category the other guy belongs to. When you have assessors trying to act and actors trying to assess, then all you do is waste everyone's time. Last one. This one's just for a little levity. Nina's mom says to her after Nina's breakup with Ben, Remember, baby, men may be like bad colds, but that also means there's always another one just around the corner. Nina asks her if there's a cure, to which her mother replies, Sleep and food and a good vibrator. Cheaper than a man and a lot more reliable. (laughs) Which one do you want to pick? (laughs) Well, first of all, uh, thank you for reading as closely as you clearly did, because you picked some really key quotes. Well, it was my pleasure. For me, it is probably the Tony quote. The first one. Because that's also one that, I mean, in all the characters, just speak to me. When I revise, you know, dialogue, I forget who said it, like, you know, the dialogue has to become just the way people talk, but but better. Mm-hmm. So, but that's almost verbatim the way she first said it to me when I was writing the scene. And I hadn't, like Ben, I hadn't even thought of it in those terms. Yeah. And it was... So it served as kind of a slap in the face to both me and to him. Mm -hmm. And I also like it when a character who, I mean, they shuffle on the page and like, at first I was like, well, why does she have her sister with her? I can't even remember. But when she said it, it was like, oh, that's why she's there. Hopefully it's a way to get one of the themes across without it being too heavy handed. But also, it's a key moment, so it needs to be heavy-handed enough that we that we feel it. I never felt that it was heavy-handed. I thought, well, of course. Yep, and I hadn't even, she needed to point it out to me. Mm-hmm. 
which just shows my own right continued struggles myself to make myself a better person and writer and engager of the world. There are layers of racism and misogyny that I'm just never going to see as as clearly as I should because I'm this old white dude and society has been constructed for me, mm-hmm. our particular society. And so even as enlightened as I try to be on a daily basis, I swim through stuff even without trying to. I swim through stuff because of of who I am and I'm trying to to be better at seeing all that stuff. That's the key that we are aware of that and we keep trying and we keep in, engaging in that conversation yep. whether it's with ourselves or other people but I like that you have these different voices including Sid's which I think his voice is important. Thank you very much. Thank you so much Pete for coming back on the show on this Friday night. Thanks for having me. This is a blast. Absolutely. For more information on Peter McDade, go to his website, peterjmcdade.com. You can find him on Twitter at Peter J. McDade. Pick up a copy of Songs by Honeybird and his other novel, The Weight of Sound, at your local indie bookstore or wherever you buy books. We'll take a short break, but don't go away. Alan Light joins me for the last segment to talk about Nina Simone, so stay tuned for that. Put a spell on you. Cause you're mine. Do, 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 do. You better stop the things you do. This is Alan Light, and you're listening to Rock Is Lit. This is from Maya Angelou's 1970 piece in Red Book about Nina Simone. Maya had interviewed Nina at Nina's home in the suburbs of New York City. The following is a direct quote from the piece. Nina Simone represents the eternal artistic enigma. Her personality contains contradictions of gigantic proportions. She is that consummate performer who practices and sharpens, honing her craft to a piercing point. But in personal appearances... She displays an aura of considered apathy. She has woven into her work all the soul-learned truths of pain and joy. Yet she is known by many to be unsocial and ungiving in personal contact. Nina Simone is able to stand upon a shadowed stage, take in all light, and then return that luminescence to her audience in opulent, pulsating rays. At other times, and with no seeming reluctance, she rejects the audience rejects their physical fact, rejects their loyalty, rejects their devotion. What formed this puzzle? What further convolutes this complexity? America, so Nina Simone says, and her inflection carries centuries of oppression and deferred dreams. America is itself a contradiction. Her sinewy fingers knit dark patterns in the air as she explains that history, black history lives for her in the urgency of today, the past being the very alive parent of the future. A listener, enraptured, is reluctant to interpret this voice that has whispered love into thousands of ears and shouted revolution into the hearts of millions. But what happened, Miss Simone? Specifically, 
What happened to your big eyes that quickly veil to hide the loneliness? To your voice that has so little tenderness, yet flows with your commitment to the battle of life? What happened to you? In this segment, I'm joined by Alan Light, author of What Happened, Miss Simone, a biography of Nina Simone inspired by the Academy Award-nominated Netflix documentary of the same title to talk about the life and career of this musical genius. Alan Light is the former editor-in-chief of Vibe and Spin magazines and a former senior writer at Rolling Stone. His other books include The Holy or the Broken, Leonard Cohen, Jeff Buckley, and The Unlikely Ascent of Hallelujah, and Let's Go Crazy, Prince and the Making of Purple Rain. Alan is the co-author of best-selling memoirs by Greg Allman and Peter Frampton. He is a frequent contributor to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Esquire, and various other publications. And from 2016 until earlier this year, he was the co-host of Debatable, a daily music talk show on Sirius XM. Alan won an Emmy Award for his work on the FX Hulu documentary, Malfunction, The Dressing Down of Janet Jackson. Thanks for joining me, Alan. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me come by. The documentary was released in 2015, and the book, I believe, was published the next year. So the obvious question to ask first is, how did the book come about? I mean, did Netflix approach you, or did you approach those folks there? It's an interesting and, and a sort of a unique situation with this one. The folks who were making the documentary had been working on it, you know, for however long they'd been working on it. And um, I think initially through the producers or the production company, they approached me and said, essentially, look, we've done, you know, all of this research for this project. Uh, we have all of this stuff. We have Nina's diaries. We have all these transcripts from interviews. We have everything that we've accumulated. And as we all know, there's only sort of a small percentage of material that makes its way to a 90-minute film. And so they sort of asked me, if we just give you all of this stuff that we've gathered, could you flesh out the story and write essentially a biography out of the research that we've done so that it could be a companion to the book and utilize all of this stuff that otherwise is never going to get seen or explored or put out into the world. At that point, the target was really having it out before the Oscars, anticipating and then getting an Oscar nomination for the documentary. So I think it came out right at the beginning, if I'm remembering right, of 2016. And it wasn't, you know, out in stores. I forget if it's when the nominations were announced or just after, but before the awards, so that as people heard about it or went to go watch it because of the nomination, then it could be followed up from there. So that was a really interesting model. It's just not, you know, usually you go write a book, you're starting from zero, you go and do the research, you're sort of following the path as it lays out in front of you and figure out what the story is. Here, it was just this dump of, here's all of this material, can you pare it away and put it together and reassemble it and kind of inside out do a, a telling of this story, which was just an interesting, different process. Um, and there were still a few other interviews, just as I encountered people, there were a few other things that I ended up doing 
because why not? But really sort of a, an upside down way from the uh, conventional uh, research model. Absolutely. And I can imagine how overwhelming that must have been to just have this information dump. Now, what do you do with it? And you're not, well, you did a few interviews, but for the most part, you're working with somebody else's research. And so that would create its own challenges. Yeah, the obvious advantage was given the nature of what this was, it was access to stuff that nobody else, you know, no other somebody setting out to do a new biography would not have had access to Nina's diaries would not have had access to, you know, some of this stuff that because of the nature of the documentary, they were they were given. And so there was all this additional opportunity to explore brand new unseen material. On the other hand, as you say, there was no control of, oh, what I'd like to do is go and find this other thing. Yeah, well, you're, you know, you don't get that, but you do get this. Yeah. So this is really pretentious, but it, it does kind of work that, you know, I almost feel like if usually writing a book is kind of like making a painting that you're starting with a blank canvas and you're adding stuff until it's done, that this one was much more like a sculpture. This was much more like you're mm-hmm. given, here's a, you know, here's a piece of marble and cut away all the stuff that you don't want and see what's left to get to the story that you do want. Now, did the people at Netflix look at drafts and say, no, I, I want this in, I don't want that in? How much of a hand did they have in it? I don't think that Netflix really had much at all. I worked with an editor at Crown who published it, who was somebody that I knew. And I don't guess we'd ever really worked together before, but we'd certainly talked a lot about working together before. And so he uh, was eager to put it through with me. I remember that there was some last minute stuff with Nina's attorney representing her estate, things that either he wanted to see or wanted to, you know, there was some back and forth. In the end, I'm not sure that really anything changed as a result of that, but that step was in there. But I don't really, as I recall, think that beyond the initial sort of hammering it out with the producers that there was any real input from the Netflix side or the film side. Um, I think they would just sort of said, go and you do your thing with this. And we've already done what we're going to do with it. And let's see how it, if it all lines up. Now, were you already a fan of her music before you started this process? I was a fan, but I was certainly not a super informed super fan. You know, I knew the parameters of the story. I'd read some stuff about her. I knew some of the records, obviously knew sort of the, the big records, but didn't really know the, the ins and outs of the Nina story going into it. So there was a lot to absorb. There was a lot to take in and learn and sort of figure out what was important and figure out which threads were the things to emphasize or to try to pull through the story. But again, the resources, the raw material that I was given were so rich that, you know, it wasn't too hard to be learning along the way, as you do with any book that, you know, any project, any long-term project, you're discovering along the way as you're putting different things together. I was certainly not a scholar going in, but the outlines and then the details of the story came to clarity uh, along the way. Well, I don't think most people know much about her. The film was such a tremendous service, an extraordinary story that really, really had not been told and that really did capture an audience, gain some real momentum and attention at a time where there were things that were bringing her. There were you know, samples being used and references being made. And she was sort of bubbling in the culture a little bit. Their timing was fortuitous, whether that's just luck or whether that's sort of the point that that's when you could move forward with something like this. 
got none, the lies of Jane. I got a bow, you ain't got none, the lies of Jane. I got a bow, you ain't got none, the lies of Jane. I got a bow, you ain't got none, the lies of Jane. I think even those who were familiar or who did have some relationship with the music, there was just so much of the story and so much of her life and her character that either you had a vague sense of or didn't even have a vague sense of. I just think the film made such an impact in terms of bringing her front and center into the story. And, you know, I I serve on the nominating committee for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, with is one of the things in my life that I do have done that for many, many years. And this was one of those clear moments where the film was that, you know, was just that transformative cultural moment where everybody sort of went, oh, right, there's somebody that we should really give a long look at. You know, I always say not to get distracted by it, but that's the reason there shouldn't be term limits is the wrong phrase. But, you know, it shouldn't be a thing where after five years, if you've been nominated, you're thrown off the ballot or after, you know, so many swings, you're not eligible anymore because things out in the world change. There's a new thing that's discovered. There's exactly. a new book that comes out. There's a new documentary that comes out that causes people to reconsider your legacy and think through your story and your contribution in a different way. And we've seen that repeatedly happen with acts that weren't really top of mind or, you know, were sort of on simmer somewhere that sort of shook everybody to say, yes, right, that is what this person contributed. We should take another look and really see if that's somebody that we should look at. This is a, an, an A-plus case of that happening. She went in a couple of years ago. Fabulous. Yeah, in the, after the film and after all of that stuff. Then I actually brought her up at the nominating committee that, that next year, and she went through the next year and got in. So it's, it's a very straight line from Excellent. You know, what they did with the film to securing that honor and, and being part of that story. So that's all you can hope for with a project like that. Well done. I'm glad to hear that. So let's talk about her background that so many people don't know much about where she was from in Tryon, North Carolina, which is just down the road from me. I'm in Asheville. And how she got into music and the difficulties that she had in her life. And she was born Eunice Wayman in 1933. You write in the book on page five that Nina was, this is a quote, a piano prodigy who grew up in a rural and segregated South with complicated relationships to her family, her music, and her sexuality. Her letters and diaries reveal a woman who feared her own husband, questioned her sexual preference, battled depression. That quote sort of forms the outline for this interview. So let's unpack it. We have complicated relationships with family, her music, her sexuality, a husband she feared, and mental illness. So let's start with her family and music. Tell me about her relationship with her family and, and how music entered her life. These are the, the themes that run through a, a full and, and a really, really complex life. But I think that the in some ways, the the most formative thing that you really need to return to over and over again when you think about Nina is what it was to be, I mean, to go back to that sentence, truly a, a child prodigy in a segregated small town in the South and everything that came with that because 
it was evident very, very young that she was this very gifted pianist. And the efforts of her entire community were to get behind this girl and get her out into the world and, and escape the limitations of the life that was, would otherwise have been prescribed for her. Which is amazing that the community did that. Yeah. She was performing from a very, very young age. And this small town community was, you know, essentially raised a fund that people contributed to or paid to go see her play these recitals or whatever it was that was to go fund her music education to get her to a school that would be able to support her talent and be able to give her the chance to go out and thrive in the world, given this incredible gift that she had been given. So she was carrying not just the expectations and the weight and all of the support, but also all of the pressure. That's hard enough when that's a family issue, but when you are chosen to represent your community in that way, it's an honor and it's a burden. Yeah. And that really does in different ways play out and inform so much of what the rest of her life ends up looking like. And that combines with, as you also mentioned, these challenging family dynamics, a feeling that her mother didn't appreciate her, didn't love her enough, didn't express her love for her enough, that her father, she was much closer to, but he was a little bit of a he sort of worked sometimes. Her mother was really the primary breadwinner and sort of the stability within the household. So she had this closer attachment to this, in some ways, sort of underachieving father and felt that she was not given enough warmth and support by her mother. So that tension is playing out through the rest of her experience. So all of these things are what is forming this young woman who behind all of that aspires to become a world-class classical pianist and is studying very intensely and practicing very intensely at a school out of town, at a private school that she is sent to, where she can participate in a real music program and work with real teachers to really develop her playing and her musicianship. This is Allen High School in Asheville that she was sent to. Right in your neighborhood. Exactly, yeah. She had a really special relationship with her piano teacher, who was a white woman. So her mother's not giving her affection. They're not really bonding. But she is with this piano teacher who said that spiritually Nina was her child. But at the same time, she'd turn around and call Nina her little colored child. So, of course, a product of the times. But that relationship seems to have taken the place of, you know, what she was not getting with her mother. Yeah. And I think that her, her talent was clearly recognized and supported. She was giving recitals by five or six, you know, and this famous, this recital that she remembers, I forget if it's the first time that she played, but she talked about very vividly remembering her parents coming 
you know, the community coming out to see this show. And it was this, you know, presentation of her and this benefit for her education and all of this. And her parents came and sat and were removed from the front row to watch their daughter so that a white couple could be placed in their seats. Again, just trying to imagine everything that's rattling around in a maybe a first grader's head as they you know watch all of this play out and as they think about the implications of all of that. And as you noted, certainly getting recognized by this piano teacher and by the, the music program, but with sort of more patronizing, you know, what what was the level of real acceptance to what level was that kind of, you know, was she sort of this freak show novelty of this young black girl from this small town for the rest of her life, she would say that Bach was her favorite composer and the composer who really, you know, she modeled everything sort of at the feeling of his composition. To just think about how did that register within a musical community, within a grown-up community, within a white community, uh, none of this came easy. And none of this, you know, was just simple acceptance of her talent without everything else that came with that. Sure. And going back to that first recital that you mentioned, she would not play until the powers that be moved her parents back to their seats. So she got into civil rights activism pretty early. Yeah, I mean, this is with everything with Nina, and I have no reason to challenge that particular story, but as Nina tells it, she's never the most reliable narrator, given to self-mythologizing and self-dramatizing and a big challenge in telling her story of how much latitude you give to her version of events. So again, as she remembers that story, that is how she tells it. And in some ways, that's what's important. That's what she took away from it. Is that true that she did that as a five or six-year-old? Maybe it is true. Maybe that was just, I want my parents close to me. Yeah. I need to be able to see them. It wasn't a, a stand for justice. It was a different sort of a thing. Who knows? There's no way to get inside of that. But to her, that was what she remembered and took away from that event. Okay, so this could be apocryphal. Here's another story that could be apocryphal. How she got the name Nina Simone. How did she go from Eunice Wayman to Nina Simone? Simone was, she said, was from the actress Simone Signoret. Yeah. And Nina, I think, was a, a nickname from a boyfriend. Nina. Nina. Yeah. Little one. That was how she put it together. I don't know. We have many, many different versions for where Bob Dylan came up with that name. So it's not like somebody sits down and writes, I'm changing my name because of this, this and that. So that was the way that she presented that. And at that point, if it's just you like the sound of it, then that's what works. So And we do. We do. <laughs> yes. Talk about the reason why she changed her name, because that has to do with her music and her family as well. In terms of the literal factuality of Nina's stories. And in some ways, the most central and formative moment and experience for her life is she goes through this high school. The idea is she's going to go on to a, a top conservatory and study the piano and become a classical pianist. And she auditions at the uh, Curtis Institute in Philadelphia. And she is not accepted into the program. She maintains for the rest of her life that she was rejected from the program because she was black mm -hmm. and that that is why they didn't accept her. Now, looking back at the records of the Curtis Institute, there were other black students 
not a lot of them, but there were a few other scattered black students who did attend Curtis then and, and previously. So do we accept that it's that it's it's absolutely racism that keeps her out of that institution? Or is there something else that's a part of that? Again, in the end within her story, what matters the most is that was what she perceived was going on. That right. was what she believed happened. And this was devastating. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was everything in her life, as we said, since she was three, four, five years old. The hopes and finances of her community, the efforts of everybody around her was toward this goal of going to conservatory and becoming this world-class musician. And that was now not going to happen. And this, you know, more than I, I think, you know, in some ways more than any other event in her life shaped her attitudes and her approach to the rest of the world. One result of that is she needs to make some money. And she needs to get some work. She's in Philadelphia, so she's not far from Atlantic City. She goes to Atlantic City to try to get some work playing piano in a lounge or a bar or whatever she can get. She is offered this job. She does not want her family to know that she's doing this. And so that is the reason for the name change, is she's going to work in this other different environment, playing different music, but is sufficiently ashamed of it, or at least feels that her family would be sufficiently ashamed or scandalized or against it, that she does this under uh, a different name. And that is where the Nina Simone name comes in. Because her mother was a preacher. Her mother was a preacher. She did not allow the kids to listen to so-called worldly music. The father would let them sneak in listens every now and then. But yeah, the, the mother would have had a big problem with this. You know, going back to the Curtis Institute, I love that right before her death, they awarded her an honorary diploma from the Curtis Institute. So. And, she, and from then on, she, for in her final days, she did insist on being called Dr. Simone. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> she did take that honorary her. degree and fully embrace it. Yes, it is a fine coda to the story that in her late, late, late in her life, but while she was still alive, she was given that honor on that recognition, which I have to believe was, was an important piece for her. People lust for fame Like athletes in a game They break their collarbones and come up swinging Some of them are crowned some of them are downed, some are lost and never found. How does Tryon, her hometown, remember her and honor her? Isn't there a house that they've restored? Yes, right now there's a big effort. The house that she grew up in does still stand. There have been different efforts to maintain it and restore it. And right now Venus Williams actually has been the one leading the effort to get the funding Wow. I think it was declared whatever. I don't know if it was a historical landmark or something that protected it so that it could continue to stand. There is uh, effort made now to, to raise funds to fix it up. I don't know if there's a museum or a historical piece that's going to be there. And I know that um, recently, within uh, the last few months, that Venus Williams gave a big bunch of money and has sort of been leading the charge to get that, get that handled. Yeah. You mentioned in the book that she lived in several different houses in Tryon. I think you said seven. How did they know which house to pick? 
I wish I had a better answer for that. <laughs> and that's a thing, I mean, particularly as it gets later in her life, and not to jump too far ahead of the story, but as her mental illness becomes more pronounced, as her emotional state becomes more complicated, as her finances become more and more challenging, her life becomes so itinerant that there are literally there are pieces where I could not be certain where it was that she was living. Yeah. There are places that she was going to move, but she never moved in. There are times where she's staying with somebody, but she really is living over here. Like there are chunks that I, you know, tried very, very hard to reconstruct where exactly she was. And it gets really tough to be certain in different times Mm -hmm. where exactly it is that that she's calling home. So that sort of itinerant existence is uh, a theme that runs through a whole lot of this story. She's back and forth between, you know, various places as her base again, until it gets, until that really spirals into a, uh, you know, a really, really difficult place. Another complicated relationship that she had, and I mentioned in the quote from your book, was with her husband, Andrew Stroud. He's the one that she feared. She actually was married once before to a guy named Don Ross. And this is yeah. really interesting that, that you go into that, but the documentary really skates right over that. I think there's one little frame with him at the uh, the Playboy Club or... With the first husband? Yes. Or with Andrew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Don. Yes. With Don, with the first husband. And this is one, I don't remember a lot of the detail about that first marriage other than mostly, I think, the overwhelming sense that she was not somebody who was ready to be married. Uh, at, mm-hmm. that, at that point, she had started this recording career and had a very a unique and a complicated relationship to the recording industry and to what her expectations were and the challenges that were put up, especially for her. When we think about Nina, you know, one thing that's really hard is what do you call the music that Nina Simone played? What is it that she did? Yes. How do you categorize her? And people called her a jazz musician and she hated that. She said, you're only calling me that because I'm black. The music that I'm mm. playing is not jazz. It is much more composed. It is not improvised in that way. That's not what I'm doing. She was sort of okay. The High Priestess of Soul was the other big nickname, and she was sort of okay because that was more sort of vibey rather than music-specific. Yeah. But this was somebody who played an astonishing range of different musics. She played Israeli folk songs. She played slave songs. She played George Harrison and Leonard Cohen songs. She was one of the greatest interpreters of Bob Dylan that there has ever, and I'm a psychotic Dylan fan, and the Nina interpretations of Dylan songs stand next to anything that anyone has ever done. I've seen my light come shining She did stuff that was more musical theater sort of based. It's impossible to put a label on what it is that she did. And musically, that is innovative and exciting and so important to the the legacy of her contribution. 
but it makes it really hard, especially back then, especially for a smaller scale, more primitive music industry. What section of the record store do you put her in? What radio station do you send the song to? The promotion and marketing side was continually complicated for her because what she did did not fit into any sort of a box. She wanted to be a big star. She wanted to be on that level with Aretha Franklin or Nancy Wilson or sort of the big jazz cabaret, whatever, other black women who were stars at that time. But she didn't really like going and playing on television. This became much more dramatic later on, but she would she would show up late for performances. She would sometimes not like an audience and walk off stage. She was really very reluctant to do anything that she felt compromised her music in any way. And so her sense of herself, which in terms of her talent was well-earned, that she should be this sort of A-list figure against the realities of the kind of ceiling that was being put on the music business. I think that that's a lot of, to get back to, I think that a lot of where the marriage, that first marriage falls apart is she's just not satisfied with where her career is going. And Andrew Stroud was this guy who was a, he was a cop in Harlem and in uptown Manhattan, but he was around the fringes of the club scene, the entertainment scene. That was what he, you know, sort of worked a lot of that as his beat, but also as the places he liked to hang out. and. He sort of offered to her this vision of he could take over as her manager and would be much more aggressive, much more of a sort of enforcer Mm -hmm. and somebody that he would really take care of her business, handle that stuff for her in a much more, again, a much more sort of aggressive way. There are things that he fought for professionally that he did achieve, sometimes through being a threatening presence and strong arming people. but. He ain't the first to do that in the music business. And, you know, there are plenty of gangsters that he was coming up against in, in, the, in the record industry and the concert promotion industry. So there were things that he was able to take care of for her. But the other side of that is this was a, an aggressive, very macho cop figure. And that that, from what she said, and certainly from things she wrote in her diaries and all of that, then spilled over into domestic violence and into abuse of of Nina in their own relationship. And it began before they got married. Tell the story of their engagement night. He basically beat the hell out of her. I uh, didn't like that she she stayed at the party too long, or she was talking to somebody else at the reception too long, or, you know, something like that, that he had perceived um, that he was already being slighted or being disrespected or something, and, you know, yanked her out of their reception and battered her starting that night. What you see in the diaries, what you see when she talked privately about this is a real, an ambivalence about this. She wanted, and she wanted an enforcer. She wanted a protector. She wanted somebody who was going to be a fighter like that. And so there were excuses that she was ready to, you know, to make around his behavior because some of this was the reason that she married him and the, the, you know, what it is that she wanted from him. Mm-hmm. So how much of which lines would she accept being crossed and, you know, and, and which wouldn't, but she certainly did not immediately pack up and leave after he started beating her. And again, in her writings about that, it's different feelings about, 
what she wanted from that relationship that made that, you know, tough for her to, to know what to do with. Really, her longest and most satisfying, for lack of a better word, relationship with a man was with her guitarist, yeah. Al Shackman, whom she met in 1957, and he was her steady friend throughout her life. This was upsetting when I, I read this in the book. After that beating that we were just talking yeah. about, she went to him and stayed with him for a few days. And even though he saw what Andy had done to her, he still looked favorably upon him, which is a little screwed up. For sure. There's plenty that's screwed up in this story and in this life. No question. Ultimately, in the end, her relationship with her music towers above all else and is the one thing through all of the, I mean, the theme really throughout her life in a lot of ways, in terms of not being able to pursue her classical music career, what these relationships with these men turned out to be, what her relationship to the civil rights movement ultimately turned out to be. There are sort of disappointment after disappointment in these big landmark things in her life. So the relationship with Al Shackman as somebody who completely understood her music, who felt like, you know, he says, it felt like we were always just in this ongoing conversation on stage. I knew where she was going to go. I could always play with her. You know, I always knew the way that she thought about the music that she was playing. That was something that was able to sustain decade after decade, even in the face of all of these other sort of train wreck disappointments and, you know, roadblocks that happened for her. No money, ain't got no class, ain't got no skirts, ain't got no sweater, ain't got no perfume, ain't got no bed, ain't got no What you've just heard is only a portion of my lengthy conversation with Alan Light about Nina Simone. Be on the lookout for the complete interview coming very soon, exclusively on my YouTube channel, at Christy Hallberg. You'll hear about Nina as a dynamic and volatile performer, her struggles with mental illness, her involvement in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, and how her passion for social and racial justice is reflected in her music during that period some of the contemporary musicians who call Nina an inspiration, and what Nina's relationship with her daughter, Lisa, who is also a singer, was like. Subscribe to the channel, at Christy Hallberg, so you won't miss out on hearing much more about this musical legend. Pick up a copy of Alan Light's bio of Nina Simone, What Happened, Miss Simone, wherever you buy books. The documentary of the same title is available for streaming on Netflix. Special thanks to Peter McDade, whose rock novel Songs by Honeybird was the focus of this episode, and whose character Nina inspired the deep dive into the life and career of Nina Simone in the last segment. Pick up a copy of Songs by Honeybird and Peter's other novel, The Weight of Sound, at your local indie bookstore or wherever you buy books. You can find the soundtracks to both novels at Bandcamp. Links to that and to my first interview with Peter McDade in Season 1, Episode 15 of Rock is Lit in the show notes. Find out more about Peter at his website, peterjmcdade.com, at peterjmcdade on Twitter, and peterjmc33 on Instagram. 
Thanks for tuning into this season three premiere, Lit listeners. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss any of the amazing episodes coming up, including my combos with such rock novel authors as Michael Parker, Jen Xcore, Kim Wright, Constant Squires, and more. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I appreciate your support. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.